Hi, I'm your host, Bella Page, and welcome to the Post-Concussion Podcast, all about life after experiencing a concussion. Help us make the invisible injury become visible. The Post-Concussion Podcast is strictly an information podcast about concussions and post-concussion syndrome. It does not provide nor substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or another qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are simply intended to spark discussion about concussions and post-concussion syndrome. Welcome to today's episode of the Post-Concussion Podcast with myself, Bella Page, and today's guest, Annie Boudreaux. Annie has lived with a brain injury after suffering from multiple concussions as a downhill mountain bike racer and snowboarder. It's been a journey to say the least, learning how to maneuver through pain every day while living a joyful life. Annie is also a certified yoga therapist and an advanced level addiction recovery coach and trainer and certified contemplative psychology educator. She is a specialist in pain science, nervous system regulation, movement for resilience, psychedelic treatment for addiction recovery, and the psychology of the mind and how to have difficult conversations. And he created the Embodied Wonderment Method, an embodied integration technique to empower people to embrace turbulent times with curiosity, authenticity, and compassion. Welcome to the show, Annie. Thank you. Happy to be here. (laughs) So can you tell everybody a little bit about your injury and how it occurred? When I thought it all started is what I'll tell you, but then I found out later that it started probably way before. And so I was a downhill mountain bike racer, but also mountain bike guide. So I spent a lot of time on a bike and also hitting my head. (laughs) And I was living in Whistler, British Columbia at the time where I started just getting these weird drops of energy, you know, I didn't quite know what was happening. And I went to see the doctor and of course, well, I'll say, of course, maybe it's not a course for everyone. She's like, well, you must be depressed. <laughs> like, mm, I live in Whistler. I don't think I'm depressed. This is a great life. And that just kept getting more and more until one day I, I passed out at work and I uh, just lost consciousness. And then I woke up with a crazy migraine and I've had it ever since for 20 years now. The symptoms of what I found out later is that I was diagnosed with post-concussion syndrome. But at the time, it's not the same as now. He just said, well, it should be gone in a year. So you come see us in a year. (laughs) And I'm in my 20s. I didn't know better. I didn't know how to advocate for myself at the time. So I was like, okay. But of course, it, it got worse and worse. You know, that had the snowball effect. What I understood is I had accumulated concussion syndrome. I'd hit my head. I had at least what I know now is a concussion because before concussions were just seen as you have to pass out and roll your eyes behind your head. But now we know that a concussion doesn't have to look like that. So when I started paying attention, I probably had like 20 concussions or so over my career. I think the statistic is about nine out of 10 concussions actually don't involve a blackout. So people don't realize that most of the time you don't completely pass out. So you don't always realize how injured you are. So I could totally see you realizing and you start counting, like how many falls have I had? How many times did this happen? That adds up to a lot, especially if you did it for a while. 
something that you kind of mentioned was being told it was depression, but being told that stress is something that a lot of people get told. I got told that a couple of times, like maybe if you reduce your stress, you'll be better. And stress definitely does affect my symptoms, but that wasn't the only cause. So how did you manage that misperception? I feel blessed that there's some part of me that called bullshit every time, you know, that I wasn't fully believing what I was being told. It wasn't easy at first, especially in my 20s, to tell a doctor, I think you're full of BS. (laughs) You know, I don't think this is it. So although I wasn't believing what was being told, it was definitely wearing on me that, well, okay, maybe I am stressed, but I don't think that that's what's happening. I know that this injury is causing me stress, but I don't really feel that that's the root cause. And like I said, my injury was 20 years ago where the conversation wasn't happening at all, even about stress management, really. And so it took a while for me to start advocating for myself and for me to get to the point where I could say, you know what, the stress is not the cause, it's a symptom of the cause. And I actually had to do a lot of self-care and understanding, like a lot more understanding my body and trusting that I understand my body and a lot more about understanding my nature of mind and trusting my innate health that even if I'm having all these symptoms that there's clarity in me somewhere and I do know what's going on. So that took a while, you know, (laughs) until I could finally be like, you know what, stress isn't the cause. It's hard because you're telling doctors or specialists how you're doing and then they're looking at you like, no, <laughs> you're like, no, but this is what's going on. And trying to trust you had been told it'll be gone in a year. And how many years later, that definitely wasn't the case. So it's hard to accept. Like, how do I tell you, no, you're wrong <laughs> when you're the one who's supposed to be the educated specialist on this? Yeah, well, what I do want to name is what I understood because you know, I was in where there's a lot of athletes, you know, Whistler, and I did see a difference between males being diagnosed and females. And a lot of the time, most of my female, myself and my female friends automatically were being told we were anxious or stressed, whereas a lot of the males were actually getting helped and were believed. And so it's important to name the sexism in the medical world too, you know, because we experience that as females that we're just told that we're anxious when there's actually something going on. Well, that's still a thing today, like let alone when you started, it happens all the time. There's so many other causes. Advocating for yourself is really hard. So do you have any tips on how to go about that properly? I feel like advocating for myself is not a strategy. Like I can't be like, okay, here's what you do. It's a practice actually of coming back and back to my own inner strength, my own worthiness, knowing that this is my body. Therefore, I know what's going on with it. And so that's quite a practice, right? And we all have different ways to come back to ourselves that way. You know, I do a lot of yoga, mindfulness practice, a lot of movement, creative things that bring me back to this place. For me, it's practicing my curiosity muscle, staying as curious as possible about what's happening for me so that I don't go in states of judgment or states of shame, you know? And so if I can stay curious and be confident in that curiosity, then that's that's where I'm coming from when I'm advocating for myself and for others. You know, there's a lot that of people that you don't might not have the same privilege as me that can even have a voice, you know, and so it's important that once I can advocate for myself, I speak for others that can't speak also, you know? Mm -hmm. No, I really like that. It's not really a process, really. It's just being able to as well and believing that what you feel is real, you're not making this up. And you have to keep pushing for that. 
no matter what, someone's looking at you funny or telling you that it's something completely different. And you do know your own body. If symptoms are still occurring and someone's telling you they aren't, they're definitely wrong because you're not making this up. And it's really common that people think that their symptoms, like, oh, well, maybe they're not. Maybe I am making them up. Well, if you're going through it for a few years or even a few months, it's very unlikely that this is just in your head in the way that they're saying it is. Well, I was diagnosed with a newer version. I can't even remember what they call it now, soma, basically of hypochondria. You know, where this male doctor was like, you're making this up and diagnosed me with that. I'm like, mm, no, <laughs> it's definitely, definitely a strong practice to stay with what's true for us. It's definitely against the stream. There's some endurance needed and we're already freaking tired. We have no concussion syndrome symptoms, you know? Well, it's the thing I always like to say is like, I don't want to be at the doctor. Like I will be the first person to tell you that I don't want to be here. So I'm not coming here because there's not something wrong. <laughs> I'm not a big doctor, hospital, kind of like, I've never liked going to the hospital as a kid. So I'm not willingly coming here all of the time because there's not something wrong. So it's important to remember that. And our first human instinct is to fix it. Like with concussion recovery, it's like, I want to get better. I want to get 100% back to where I was because you don't think like that's just the solution is to get better. So how did you change your perspective from that fix to manage the symptoms instead? Yeah, I wouldn't use either of those words. What really helped me was shifting my focus from how will I get better, which was so exhausting, right? How will I get better? How will I get better? How will I get better? To how will I live a joyful life even with this happening? And so that really broadened my view because there's lots of places where I have joy in my life. And so if I could reorient myself to the places that bring me joy that reduced somehow the overwhelm of the pain. So I feel it wasn't about managing pain or taking pain out, it was actually working with the overwhelm of the pain, which was that I was hyper-focusing on it, really, right? And that's, I just want to say that that's a normal human experience. When we're experiencing pain, our pain system wants us to hyper-focus on it. So it's quite a practice to be like, I hear you, pain, thank you, but I'm also going to notice all of the things that benefit me in my life and focus on that. And I feel that that's what regulates my nervous system. That's what helps reduce my overwhelm. I don't know if that makes sense to you. No, it does. And that different outlook can be huge, especially like it's a lot of a mental game while you're going through it. And being able to change your perspective into that way sounds like it definitely would have helped. I'm not being like, I just did it. And one day I was shifting for one at least I come back and back to the question. I'm like, what am I asking myself? Could I live a joyful life even with this happening? And I come back and back to that question. So I don't want to make it sound like it's super easy. You just flip your script and all is well. <laughs> it's not like that. It's again, it's this practice of coming back. And what I I wonder if you experience this too. When I stayed curious about this what brings me joy and when I stay with it, I was always blown away that when I'm really engaged with something I love, I actually don't feel that much pain, you know? I call it your escape, like riding horses. When I'm on, I feel absolutely zero pain, like negative, like there's nothing. And then like, I would feel pain like later that day, but like while I was doing it, there was nothing. Like the pain, like you can actually refocus your brain on something else so you don't feel that. It's beautiful, right? And so how can I keep practices that reorient me to things that engage me and bring me joy, you know, so that I can 
would have a little less pain that that amount of time. And so even me spending this time with you, I'm more engaged. And so I'm, I'm already feeling my symptoms less than when we started, you know? For sure. Actually, me too. Yeah. <laughs> Funny how that works. <laughs> Funny how that works. Yeah. So you can find Annie at schoolofreverence.com. That's school of R-E-V-E-R-E-N-C-E.com, which will also be in our show notes as well as Annie's other contact info. With that, let's take a break. Be sure to stay tuned to listen in on our discussion on regulating pain. Want to create awareness for concussions? Want to support our podcast and website? Buy awareness clothing today on postconcussioninc.com and get 10% off using Listen In. That's L-I-S-T-E-N-I-N. And be sure to tag Post Concussion Inc. in your photos. We'd love to see them. Welcome back to the Post Concussion Podcast with myself, Bella Page, and today's guest, Annie Boudreaux. Something that we haven't mentioned a ton yet is mental health, which is one of the biggest missed problems among individuals recovering from a brain injury. And Annie has some mindfulness training. So how do you find that helped you? Yeah, I think first I wanted to say that I got goosebumps when you talked about it because it feels like something big and how mental health is talked about and how it's separated from physical health and that that, that causes damage. And so what I really understood throughout the years of mindfulness training, but also just embodiment, you know, getting to know my body more is that I actually see no evidence that the, there's a difference between that the two are separated, like mental health things and physical things that our systems have separated them. You either have a physical injury or you have a, a mental something, illness or, or whatever we want to call it. But what I've understood getting to know the nervous system more is that the brain doesn't actually differentiate between physical pain and emotional pain. It lights up the same parts of the brain. So I feel like that's important to speak to because that was helpful for me to understand. Also, I want to speak to the fear, the stigma around mental illness. And so if a doctor decides, no, you don't have a concussion, you're just mentally ill, how that can let's just say F up our life, right? You've just put me in a category where my help will go down because people tagged with mental health disorders or illnesses are not getting the same quality of care. That's what I've seen anyways. And so there's a danger in being tagged that like a, a true one sometimes, you know? And so that's messed up. Let's, let's end that. Okay? <laughs> it is. <laughs> no, I agree. They're connected. Like I always say, like, did you not realize that all the physical pain is also definitely causing the mental health? There's not a split. Like, I agree. There's no, I have mental health problems and I have physical problems. Like, they're so intertwined that people don't realize how connected they are. Yes. And it's not like this death sentence. Like, mental health is talked about, like, if you have it once, then that's it forever. Like, if you break your arm, you don't have a broken arm forever. <laughs> like, it's just spoken about this thing that's tagged on you forever when really it's a spectrum. We all go in and out of different states of our mental health, you know? And so one is like just talking matter-of-factly about this. That, that's one thing that helped me in that awareness, mindfulness way, you know, without an actual mindfulness practice. But mindfulness practice definitely helped me work with difficult emotions, 100%, which come along. What I noticed was interesting is it wasn't usually difficult emotions towards the pain, actually. It was difficult emotions towards relating with my world because I'm in pain. 
relating with other people, relating with just my environment. Does that feel true to you? You know, it's not usually about the pain itself. It's about like, well, I don't want to make somebody else uncomfortable because of my pain, or I don't want to feel somebody else's discomfort because of my pain. Like, you know, so we're working with discomfort all the time. And mindfulness practice really helped me with that, where I could work with the energy of the emotion itself and not pile on a bunch of stories about it. First, you just have the sensation of shame. You're like, oh, oh, but then you pile on a bunch of stories and then you feel shame that you felt that you're feeling shame and you're, you know, and then you pile on a whole bunch of things. So what I love about mindfulness practice is it keeps me very present with what's actually happening without either completely shutting it out and pretending it's not happening or making a whole bunch of stories up about it. And I feel like the healing happens in the moment. So in the present moment. So if I can stay out of future tripping or past tripping, or at least just having curiosity and reverence for those states and trying to stay as much as in this present state as possible, that's very, very helpful for my mental health. And I really feel like sometimes I wonder how I'm still alive, how I haven't become super addicted to painkillers or even gone the route of suicide. And I really feel like the curiosity muscle that mindfulness practice has has helped me with is, has really kept me loving life even with all of its discomfort you know for sure that mindfulness practice is what allow me to stop the spiraling like you explained it a little different but your thoughts just start going and going and then all of a sudden you're thinking about you physically and mentally like you can't handle it it's so many thoughts going through your brain and the mindfulness allowed me to like calm that down and then like go back into where I am now, how I'm doing and like what's in front of me versus what I created in my brain, which is not like proper thoughts and things like that. So it can make a big difference. It made a huge difference for me. It was still kind of missing something like the mindfulness practices that I was learning was missing nervous system education. And it was really helpful for me to also understand the states of my nervous system so I could normalize when I'm in a loop or a trance or a spiral. It's actually normal that I'm going in spirals when I'm in survival mode. That's kind of the nature of survival mode. It wants us to hyper-focus on something. And so we kind of hang out there a little too long for our benefit, you know? And so it was really helpful to be like, oh, this is actually a normal human experience. And when I can name what's happening and be like, okay, I'm in survival mode. And so I need to resource myself a little bit more so I can get back to a different part of my brain, not just the limbic system. And that's very empowering, right? And so I found that some mindfulness practices just were missing that language that was also very helpful for me. So I really appreciate mindfulness teacher that also integrate nervous system education, you know, that we can you normalize that. And so it's the same thing where I'm not actually being lazy right now. I'm not, it's just that I'm in freeze mode. You know, my nervous system's so out of whack that I, I can't even move forward. And there's things that I can do for that. When I know that I'm in freeze mode, there are little things I can do for that. So that type of mindfulness, that awareness of a whole system. And that's also what was helpful for me to normalize what's being called mental health when we've experienced trauma, you know, whether physical trauma or emotional trauma is the nervous system education allowed me to understand that trauma affects me on a physiological level, right? Like trauma will change the way I see, the, the way I taste, the way I hear, the way I feel. And so that was helpful for me to understand as I work towards recovery, you know? For sure. Un understanding just makes a big difference in like everything. 
even like seeing a doctor and they tell you something like I always like to ask why like why am I taking this why am I doing this because that next level of understanding can make a big difference just mentally as well because you actually know what's going on why you're doing something rather than just blindfully kind of going through different recovery processes which can often happen something Annie had mentioned is luckily not becoming addicted to pain pills and Pain is a very common symptom in post-concussion individuals. It was one of my largest problems, still is one of the issues that I deal with, definitely not as often as before. But I found a lot of pain management, like there's so many different options out there, to be really ineffective. And some I found worked, but what are your thoughts on pain management? Yeah, that's a big topic. I could talk two hours on it, but let me like keep it busy. Some people go right away and demonizing pain meds, and I, I don't want to go that route because they do really help a lot of people. When it changes to addiction, though, is because a lot of times these pain meds are given as the only thing, the only resource. Here you go, and nothing else is given, right? And the way the brain works is it needs to know the resources out there. If it only has one, that it'll only go to that one. And the thing is, we have a lot of resources around us, but they might not have been named, right? Like doing a podcast with you, that's a really great resource for me right now. But So I need to like name these things for myself. So what I find is the downfall of the medical system is they just have a pill, but not a whole bunch of other resources for people or the resources that are given, they're hard to integrate. Like, well, how does this relate with what's happening for me and there's no opportunity to even integrate the resources that have been given to us you know so people that are frustrated are like people have been told tell me to do this and try this and try this and it's not working like for me what I found is that it's my capacity to integrate what the resource that's actually going to be helpful and so that's what's lacking I don't want to say that meds are bad but meds can turn into addiction when we don't have other resources around I myself, like I do have pain meds and sometimes that is the option for me, but I also have alternatives to those pain meds. I don't just take pain meds every day or every time I have a headache. There's lots of other things I'll do or try to manage the pain or prevent the pain rather than just going to the medication right away. If you're taking it daily, then maybe there's something else that you can be doing to help prevent that pain. Because if like that is your constant, then that's a very likely way that you're going to become addicted to those pain meds. Yeah. And it's important to name trauma and early childhood, like adverse childhood experiences and how that plays into our recovery and our pain levels and all of that. And so that will determine too, like if your brain will gravitate more towards one resource than the other, if it's already a very traumatized brain, even before you have a concussion or anything, right? So if you've had a lot of trauma growing up, your brain's already in high alert. And then you hit it and a few times like me, like concussion after concussion. That's why I said I thought it started there, but I realized that it started before. My brain was on high alert much before I even started mountain biking. But then it just snowballed, you know. It's important to know that within myself and to know that when I'm holding space for others or helping others, because that's really going to contribute to what extent I can even integrate any resources if to even get back to regulate my nervous system is going to be a quite different journey for me if I've had a lot of trauma before I've even had the concussion. Is that, that making sense? And so that was really helpful for me to understand and like, 
okay, why is it taking me so long? But my friend that's had the same injury is not taking them so long. Like what's up with that? And so that all depends on, on brain re- resilience, right? And the environments that we've grown up in. And so racism, oppression, all sorts of things play into that, right? Well, and that's something else I like to point out that a concussion and your symptoms can totally affect your life differently. Also, not just on the past and what you're going through right now. Like if you're a parent or a child who's trying to go through school or you're in a job, like all of those outside factors can affect the way you recover or the way you, like how you feel about a symptom, like loud noise wouldn't affect you so much if you live a really quiet life. But if you have really loud kids at home or you work in a busy, loud environment, it can completely change the way you think about things. So it's important to remember when you are not someone recovering from a concussion, or if you are, that everyone's situation is very different and it's hard, like you shouldn't just be comparing yourself to others because like you said, why are you recovering? And I'm not, that happens all of the time. There's so many different factors out there than just the hit itself. Yeah, it's very complex, right? It's not this linear thing. Like I found the difficulty with the medical system is works very linear. So you have this, so you should be able to take this and then this will happen. <laughs> but it's like, no, it's very web-like. And because we're talking about addiction, what I recognize is that actually trauma, chronic pain and addiction are all kind of intertwined together. And they'll just show up in different ways, but they're very much in this web together, right? And so to try to address you know, post-concussion syndrome or any kind of chronic symptoms that you might have, if you try to address them linearly, you'll get really freaking frustrated and down on yourself. Like, why isn't this working? It should be like, do, 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 do. But that's why I keep saying it's not really a strategy. It's more of a practice, right, of coming back and back. And the other part that was really helpful for me to understand and, and, and with addiction, too, is that it is a normal human experience to disconnect from our bodies when we're in pain. Yet the healing happens in our bodies. Right. So we have to find these ways back. And so sometimes these meds take us even further away from our bodies. So it's very important that we have these practices to bring us back to our body. And that's not necessarily easy because when we are in pain, our body might be the battleground, right? We don't want to go in our bodies. Now there's more resources than ever to slowly get back to that, to titrate back, you know, into a relationship with your body. So is there anything else you would like to add before ending today's episode? This was just a pleasure. Thank you. I feel like, let me see, what would I like to add? I feel like I'm really grateful for this podcast that you're creating because one of the resources is community, you know? We need community. We need people that just get it without us saying anything and to really normalize our experience and to break stigma because the reality is many people with post-concussion syndrome are committing suicide. Like, we need to name that. And so creating community like this is so important and I'm really appreciative of you creating this podcast and just having these conversations. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining, sharing your story and a lot of your perspective on living with post-concussion syndrome. Has your life been affected by concussions? Join our podcast by getting in touch. Thank you so much for listening to the Post-Concussion Podcast and be sure to help us educate the world about the reality of concussions by giving us a share. And to learn more, don't forget to subscribe.